Julie and I had been married just a few years when we got a phone call we weren't expecting. Her cousin Jonathan, a few years younger than she was, had been killed in a, um, in a just a freak accident. And so we dropped everything that we were doing. We flew to South Dakota, and we spent some uh, some precious time really with family and with friends celebrating his life, mourning his loss. I will never forget the sight of his young widow draped across the coffin, just wailing. Somebody else was holding their three-month-old son, their only child. And if you've ever seen that or experienced that, it's different than just having a bad day or just being depressed. It's actually grief that's coming up from inside you like a hollow, hollow place. And that wasn't the first time that I'd seen parents bury their children. A few years before that, uh, a, a girl that I went to elementary school with was murdered in my hometown. And I, we weren't close. I hadn't seen her in uh, probably 15 years. But I happened to be in town when, when they were having the funeral. And so I kind of slipped into the back of the funeral home. I might have known one or two people there. But I, I sat and just, I was silent. I was unobserved, but I participated in the suffering of this family. Maybe you've gotten a call like the one I got uh, for my uncle. He was 62 years old and he died suddenly of a heart attack. I went to that funeral too. And his father, my grandfather, who at the time was in his 90s, sat silently in the back. Didn't say anything. You can just kind of see it on his face. It isn't the way that the world's supposed to work. And intuitively, we kind of know that. What all those people had in common was they didn't get to wrestle with the existential questions that we all wrestle with after they leave. Because they didn't know that their death was imminent. It was, it was just coming. It was upon them in an instant. And so my Uncle Roy and my friend Tanya and Julie's cousin Jonathan never got to ask, why me? Why, why now? Could we wait a day? Could we wait a year? Could I see my son graduate from high school? They, they didn't get to wrestle with the harder questions. I mean, I'm sure they thought about death. I'm sure they knew at some point that they were going to die. They didn't get to wrestle with those questions in an existential way as it related to them at that time. Shortly after I moved to Nashville, I uh, became friends with a young man. He, um, he'd beaten cancer, but it came back. And I got to watch him wrestle. I got to, wa- I got to pray with him. I got to walk with him. It was a privilege, but it was hard. And... The diagnosis was optimistic, then it was realistic, pessimistic, finally it was terminal. And Michael did get to ask those questions. What is God's purpose in my suffering? Why me? Why now? Is it because I don't have enough faith? Is it because I haven't prayed hard enough? Have I eaten the wrong foods? Have I trusted in medicine more than God? We would go on long runs. This dude ran two half marathons with me. We spent a lot of time talking. We prayed for answers. We prayed for healing. What we got was a service because I conducted his funeral just a few miles from here. And the suffering that comes as you walk through those experiences, we can't, it's almost undescribable. It's, it's, it's unimaginable. It's inexpressible. And I'm sure that if you're more than a couple years old, you've experienced this. There might be somebody in this room that's buried a child. Or maybe you've been to a funeral where it was actually the, the, the parent that was being buried, but the children were so, so young, you didn't even know how to dress them or explain to them the event that they were going to. Maybe it wasn't death 
maybe it was a bankruptcy. You were, you were in business. I mean, you were killing it. You were doing all the right things. You were tithing. You were giving over and above. You employed people. You were, you were, you were, the, you were the person everyone wants to be, and God took that away. Or you had a dream, something that you were sure God had called you to do. It might have been a mission, a nonprofit, some church that you were going to plant. And you worked and worked at it for years, and it it left. And you're you're wondering, where is God in this? What is his plan? Why me? Why now? Why not someone else? And throughout all of history, people have asked this same question. Why? And I think how we hear this question asked most often, in fact, there was a book by this title, I'm going to start to write it on the board here, and you are going to help me fill out the phrase, right? The question is this, why do bad things happen? What's the last phrase? To good people. You guys have heard this. To good people people? It's a fair question, and we're going to answer it today, because I believe we find the answer in the book of Job. We are not the first people in history to wrestle with this question, and we won't be the last. Scripture says a great deal to say about this particular question. And I want to tell you a little bit about where we're headed today, because we're going to try to cover a lot. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the book of Job. Johnny gave us a good start. And if you've been reading along in our chronological Bible, how many of you are reading? Okay, so you're about halfway through. We're going to walk through the book of Job. I want to give an answer to this question. I want to give us a tool to use when we're suffering. And finally, I want to see if we can find a way to apply some of the wisdom of the book of Job to the season that we're in at the Church of Woodbine, which is a very exciting season. So let's talk a little bit about Job. Uh, Job doesn't appear next to Genesis, but our scholars believe that it happened at about the same time. We're reading the Bible chronologically, and by everybody's best guess, Job happens about the time of the patriarchs, probably Genesis 11, 12, think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But unlike Genesis, Job is not written as narrative. It's not written as history. If you've read Genesis, it reads like a history book, right? It's like who, what, where, and when. It's very descriptive. Job, on the other hand, is very poetic. In fact, one of the commentators that I read this week described Job this way. Job is a theological argument conducted in the form of poetry. Can I just tell you? I'm not good at poetry. I mean, have you guys been reading this thing? It's like, it's really long and it's really hard. Can I get an amen? Okay, I'm just making sure that you all are here. So Job is structured differently than than Genesis. It's more literature. It reads like a story and it teaches us many lessons. We're going to look at just one of them this morning, but because not everybody might have read this, maybe some of you are behind in your scripture reading plan and you can get caught up this week, that's okay. But we're going to go through not the whole thing, but I'm going to spend quite a bit of time making sure that we set up the story, because only in setting up the story of Job can we actually answer this question. Are we ready? Genesis 1. Or Sorry, uh, we're going to do Job. We're not going all the way back. We're just going to do Job. 
uh, in Job, we read there was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, let's just pause right there because what this, the text does not say is that Job was sinless. He was not blameless. He'd, he'd committed sins. He hadn't done everything right, but this was an upstanding man. He'd done, uh, he was the citizen in the community that everyone wanted to be. And it tells us he had seven sons. He had three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. How many servants did he have? How many servants do you need to take care of 11,000 animals? That's got to be a fair number of servants. Job was loaded. Actually, it says Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East, but I like my translation better. Now, what we see in the next couple verses is that uh, we learn a little bit more about Job's family, how he interacted with his children, and then the action starts in verse 6 of chapter 1, and, and it reads this way, One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Can we just pause there? Does that just sound weird? It sounds really weird. Job is literature. I'm I'm not entirely sure how to read that. I'm just going to accept at face value that this happened. It just sounds strange to me. And we're going to repeat it again in chapter 2. It sounds strange there too. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? Satan says, I've been roaming all throughout the earth. I've been walking around. And the Lord said to Satan, have you seen my man Job? I mean, that guy has it going on. No one else on earth is like him. He's completely full of integrity. He fears me and turns from evil. Evil. And Satan says, well, yeah, of course he does. He's loaded. You have blessed him. You blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns. He will surely curse you to your face. God says, game on. He says, you, you can have it. I'm putting everything he owns in your power. Just, just don't touch him. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and Job has a horrible, rotten, terrible, no good, very bad day. It gets bad because all of his animals are killed. Or, sorry, all of his animals are taken away. His servants are killed. And then finally, his 10 children are in one house celebrating a feast. The house falls down, kills all of them. And he gets this news basically all at the same time, the way that the text reads. And then Johnny read us these verses, and we're going to read them again because I just think this is so great. Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head, signs of mourning in in ancient times. He fell to the ground, he worshipped, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will leave this life the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then this verse that ends chapter 1, throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Some time goes by. We have, chapter, we have the second chapter, and we have a repeat of scene 1. The sons of God and Satan come again, and they're, they're in God's presence. And God says to Satan one more time, have you seen Job? He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Well, yeah, Satan says. A man will give up everything in exchange for his own life. Stretch out your hand, strike his body, give him a disease. He will surely curse you to your face. And God says again, game on. He's in your power, only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. 
his wife piling on, tempts Job to say the very thing Satan bets God that he will. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? And throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now we're going to fast forward through about 35 chapters because there's a lot. But we see at the end of chapter 2, Job has three friends who are his counselors in his affliction. Uh, They are Zophar, Eliphaz, and the shortest man in scripture, Bildad. The Shuhite. It'll it'll come to you later. All right. At first, they're excellent counselors. They sit they sit with him for seven days without saying a word. But then they open their mouths. They start to speak, and the dialogue is interesting. By which I mean really hard to read because it's thirty five pages of, of trying to understand the nature of God, the nature of suffering, who's blessed, who's cursed why it is and how it is that happens. His friends get some of it right. They get much of it wrong. And we meet a fourth character towards the end of that time, Elihu, who actually gives some good counsel. But the the summary of all of that is Job says, I want to make my case before God. He does not sin and curse God, but he says, I want to question God and find out why he is doing this to me. I want to make my case as a righteous man that I do not deserve the punishment that I have been given. And in chapter 38, we see that Job gets his wish because God shows up. And it says that God comes out of a whirlwind. He says, who is this, meaning Job, who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? That is not a great way for God to start a conversation with you. There are 74 more question marks in the next four chapters. But they all follow the pattern of these first few verses. Get ready to answer me when I question you. Where were you when I made the world? Who fixed the dimensions of the earth? What supports its foundation? Who laid its cornerstone? For four chapters, Job hears this. And then he responds in chapter 42, verse 1. He replies to the Lord, I know you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Surely, God, I spoke about things I did not understand. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words, and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. There are many ways to interpret the book of Job, and to take lessons from Job, we are going to concentrate on one word, and that word is sovereignty. A sovereign is a person who's a ruler, an emperor, uh, a king with supreme power, and God is sovereign. But God is sovereign in a different way than than the men and women of the world who would be rulers. God is sovereign over absolutely everything, and that is the clear and unmistakable lesson of the book of Job. God is sovereign. And you will notice that in four chapters, God never gives Job an answer. And actually, I wonder if he had given him an answer, how satisfying that answer would have been. God told Satan that he afflicted Job for no reason. I wonder how satisfying that answer would have been for Job had God delivered it to him. But with all the questioning that God, uh, that God, all the questions that God presents to Job, 
with all the back and forth of his friends, Job comes to a very clear conclusion, which is that God is God and Job is not God. God is not offended by our questions, but he feels under no obligation to answer them. He is completely sovereign over everything, everywhere, everyone, all the time. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because it's part of God's plan. That answer is not very emotionally satisfying. It doesn't necessarily help me process my grief or my suffering. When you go to a funeral that you don't feel you should go to, or when you experience a loss that you don't think you should have, to understand that it's part of God's plan may not be emotionally satisfying. Scripture assures us that it is true. So we've looked at Job. I've answered the question. The answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is simply this. God is sovereign in our sufferings. He's sovereign in our every season. He's sovereign full stop. God is sovereign in our sufferings. When bad things happen to you, to me, to Job, to my Uncle Roy, to Julie's cousin Jonathan, to my friend Tanya, to my friend Michael, it's part of a plan that we can't see. God does not owe us an explanation. Now, I promised you a tool to help you understand this. And so I am a big believer in, in, in frames. I think that frames help us understand things. And frames draw our attention to what's important. So I brought today a frame that I found in my basement. And this is a picture that I found in our room. And Julie, uh, this, is, this picture is actually painted by Julie's grandmother. This is one of her earlier works. If you come to our house ever, you will find lots of paintings by Julie's grandmother. But this is one of them. Interestingly, she didn't like this painting. I've always kind of liked it. But what's the purpose of the frame in this painting? The purpose of the frame is to draw attention to what's important. The frame by itself isn't important at all. In fact, if I showed you this picture and asked you to close your eyes, I'm willing to bet you could tell me that the picture is a picture of a ship on the ocean, but you might not be able to tell me what the frame was or anything about it. The entire purpose of the frame is to draw attention to the more important work in the middle. Now, I can take the picture out, and you'll see that it doesn't look quite as nice, but I can repurpose the frame as well. I'll put the picture over here. I'm going to show you that I can move the frame around the stage and I can make art. Here's a little piece of modern art. This is stool in a frame. And the Chicago Museum of Art must be like $10,000. I go over here. Welcome to Nashville. Okay? I could do this, and that is a picture you do not want in your house. Okay? So we have, we have a frame. But how we frame things is important because it draws our attention to the most significant item, what it is that we should see. And we don't just frame images or, or pictures or even objects. We can also frame words. And I am a big believer that how we frame words, the words that we use, how we ask, how we ask a question determines how the question gets answered. And I'm going to give you an example. How many of us have ever been on a diet? Okay, all the rest of you are liars. Okay, so, uh, or you're asleep, but most of us have been on a diet. And diets, we don't like them. Why is it that we don't like them? Because it's all about restriction. It's about what I can't have. If I'm on a diet and we go to McDonald's, I'm ordering a salad. Have you had the salad from McDonald's? I mean, it's not awesome. A few years ago, I had a coach who talked to me about having a nutrition plan. 
Doesn't that sound much better? It's not about what I'm not, not going to eat. It's about what I'm going to get to eat. I would rather have a nutrition plan than a diet every day of the week. How about this one? I'm a stewardship minister, so I talk with people a lot about their money, how to manage their money. What do we use when we, when we, when we manage money? We, it, it's a word that starts with B and rhymes with budget. It's a budget, right? I've never liked that word because a budget to me sounds like a diet. It means I can't spend money. You know what's a better word for budget? Spending plan. Oh, look at that. You're all like, hey, honey, we need to go home and talk about our spending plan. There's your takeaway from the Sermon of Job. But I would rather have a spending plan than a budget any day. How about this one? Um, we're, going, we're going to change something. How many of us like change? We're like all about the changes. Let's have changes. Most people that I know are change averse. They're change resistant. They kind of like things the way they are. That's the way they're that way. So instead of using the word change, I like to reframe it. I'm going to reframe change to improvement. Everybody wants to improve something. So when our kids were little, Julie would say to me, hey, hon, the, the baby's diaper needs to be changed. I would say, I do not want to change the diaper. I will go improve it. And that is, what, that is how we manage that in our house. But how we frame and reframe questions and words are very important. I'm going to make a suggestion that this question is actually framed in a way that doesn't help us understand it as well. Because Uh, I told you I was bad at poetry, but I remember this much from grade school English. Why is an interrogative, that's a question, to good people is an object. But to answer the question, you don't need to ask it that way. When we say, why do bad things happen to good people, most of the time what we're really asking, why do bad things happen to me? It's a fair question, but it's not the best one. If God is sovereign over all of the bad things that happen, the question is not why do bad things happen to good people. The question, which we've already answered, can be reframed that way. Why do bad things happen at all? And the answer, as we said, is that God is sovereign in our sufferings. tell you a little bit more about Michael. Um, I got to have so many conversations with this guy. It was great. Uh, And as he was battling his disease, he would collect these random quotes from conversations that he'd had or messages that he'd heard or scripture that he'd read. And he put them all on his phone in these little uh, notes section in your phone. And after he passed away, his wife took them and put them in a book. And I had this book on my desk when I was writing this sermon, coincidentally or not. And so I started paging through it. And I was thinking about this idea, what is the purpose of suffering? If, the, if we know that God is sovereign in our suffering, that doesn't help us intellectually. What, what helps us emotionally? Here's something that Michael wrote down. I'm actually pretty sure he got this from me, although um, he might have got it from somebody else with more life experience. He wrote, what if life is less about what you do and more about the person you are becoming? That's a reframed question. He's not asking why is it that I have cancer? What he's asking is, what's God doing in my life? Who am I becoming? And I turned this and I actually marked another one this morning. I thought this was great. We have 42 chapters in Job and about 30 or 40, however many thousands of words. Here's, here's Michael's version of Job. I love this. If everything material in our life were to crumble, that's Job 1 and 2. We have God and we relationship. We have God and we have relationships. We have everything. 
bets Job 3 to 42. Michael learned some significant lessons in his suffering. Was that the purpose? I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I'm not God. But the questions that he was asking were much better questions. About a year before he passed away, we had a conversation. And Michael said the most interesting thing to me. He said, you know, I've grown up in church. I would have told you I've been a Christian all my life. He said, the process of this disease and the counsel of godly men has been refining for me. He says, I'm not even sure I was, I was saved before. I think I've come to know God in a new way. Now, I would have bet money. I would have bet my life that Michael had a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ before then. And yet, he believed in his personal spiritual renewal so strongly that he asked his father-in-law to baptize him for a second time. Was the purpose in Michael's life, was the purpose of suffering in Michael's life to draw him closer to God? And if that was the purpose, was he really suffering? I don't know, and I'm not sure. What's the purpose of suffering in your life? I don't know. I only know that God is sovereign over all bad things. What was the purpose of suffering in Job's life? God never really says. A materialistic person might look at that and say, well, the reason that Job suffered was so that his wealth would double by the end of his life. I don't think the text teaches that at all. In fact, there's a whole set of characters in Job whose suffering were never given an explanation for, and we just read past them. Have you ever noticed these people? He has seven sons, three daughters, and dozens or hundreds, I don't know how many, of servants, and they all die. If, God, if Job felt that God owed him an explanation for his suffering, how much more of an explanation would God owe to his first ten children and all of his servants, who apparently their entire purpose in life was to serve as props to make their father and master suffer? Does that make any sense to you? It doesn't, but God is sovereign in every season, and he is sovereign in our sufferings. So there's many things, many things that we don't. No, I don't know the season that you're in. Somebody here may be going through suffering like that, with that deep upwelling of just anguish and emotion, and you're looking for someone to sit with you, and you're looking to God for answers. Can I suggest, can I suggest humbly that maybe we can reframe the question? So the question is not, why, what is God doing to me? The question is, what is God doing? Full stop. Why is this happening to me is not a good, as good a question as, why is this happening? Job was a small part in a much larger work that he did not understand. And so are you, and so am I, and so is everyone you have ever known that has suffered. We want there to be some easy answer, and there simply isn't. So we've done the survey of Job. We've come up with an answer for the question, why do bad things happen to good people? God has a plan. And I want to talk to us just a little bit about this season in the Church of Woodbine. To be clear, 
we are not suffering. (laughs) But I think there is a spiritual truth that's applicable from the book of Job to this season, as it is in all seasons. Because if God is sovereign, the question is, what is he doing here? If God is sovereign over suffering and he's sovereign over every season, what is his purpose in this season of transition in the life of our church? And it's a pretty good question. And I think the answer depends upon how we frame it. Yesterday, I had the privilege of being in, um, in a deacons meeting with, with our Woodbine deacons. What a great group of guys. And we were having a conversation. The context is, is largely uh, only tangentially relevant. But one of the men made the point, he says, I believe when we talk about transition, he says, we get, we get all, the, all the words wrong. And I said, what, what do you mean by that? He said, well, we talk about what I want or what he wants or she wants or they want uh, or even what we want. He said, a much better question is what is it that God wants? What is God doing in the story right now? I told you, uh, I told you week two, I am an, I'm an incredible optimist. I'm all about making things new and better, and I'm all about renewal. I think, I think that the church at Woodbine is in, is in a season of transition, but also a season of renewal. Fadi, one of our staff ministers, came and gave us that word. He said, all churches, all churches need renewal. We need to be constantly renewed by the Spirit of God. But I'm going to add, there's something that we can do uh, that would mess that up, and that would be, if instead of framing the question that way, we put something else in the frame. Uh, so I've shown you some things we can put in frames. We can put, it, we can put words. We can put objects. Um, we, put, we put photos. You know what else goes in a frame in your house? I have it here. A mirror. Now the problem with looking into this frame is that if you believe the frame shows you what's the most important thing, What's looking back at you? It's you. And we've just learned that in in the account of Job and in the structure of the world, while we think we are the most important thing, in fact, we are not. If a frame draws our attention to to the most important thing, let's make sure that in this season of transition, we focus our attention on the right frame. Not what do I want? What do we want? What do they want? She, he. What does God want to teach us in this season? I believe that in a season of transition, there's opportunities for corporate renewal. But each and every one of us, as we transition into whatever's coming next, we can grow as well. Only if we frame the questions the right way. So here's my challenge for us as a community and as a church. Uh, Next week at 9.30, we are going to spend part of our small group time in prayer for the future of this congregation. This will not be the last time that we spend in prayer. It'll simply be the first. We're going to have other prayer challenges and opportunities in the weeks and in the months ahead. But I believe that by praying, we can focus our attention not on what we want or what we would prefer, but what it is that God wants to do here. Now, when we pray, we're not going to pray just for for the next pastor. 
although we need to pray for that guy, I'm going to run out of illustrations and stories partway through the year. So we're going to need somebody to come in. All right. But we're going to pray, what is it that God wants to do in us? What is God doing? Not to us, but through us. How is it that God wants to use you and me in the coming season in this community in the months and years to come? So at 930, uh, our small groups are going to be praying for about half an hour. Now, I'm going to let you know something. This is my fourth week here, and because of weather and holidays, it's the first time that I found myself able to attend one of our small groups because it's the first time that they happen. Can I tell you something? We start church pretty late at 1045. I'm going to let you know it's worth it to get up an hour and 15 minutes earlier and make your way here and join in with one of these groups if you're not a part of one. And if you're not a part of one, you say, I'm not ready to join a group. That's okay. Please come next week and pray. If you don't want to sit in with one of those groups, we'll form a new one for you. God is sovereign in every season. He is sovereign in our blessings. He is sovereign in our sorrow and in our struggle. He's he's sovereign in our transitions, and he is sovereign here. Let me pray over you this morning. God, Job is a hard, hard book. And we want to find easier answers than are in the text, but the answers aren't easy, even though they're true. This morning, I pray for the man, the woman, the teenager, the child that's here. When I talk about suffering, it's all all that they can do to not just break down right now. There's a lot of life in this room and a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. God, help us to frame the questions the right way, not what is being done to us, but what are you doing? Not why are bad things happening to me, but help me understand your sovereignty in this struggle. And for the Church of Woodbine in this season of transition, I pray that even more you would show us what it is you want to do here, what part you want each of us to play. We pray for the man that would pastor this church. We don't want to wait to be renewed until he comes. We want to be about the things that you're doing now. Help us to chase that. In Jesus' name, amen.